that you would speak to us by your word. I pray that I would not get in the way of what you have for your people today. Lord God, I pray you would say what people uh, need to hear from you, whether they like it or not, Lord Jesus. I pray that you'd be glorified in my words tonight, Lord Jesus. I pray uh, what you have to say would not be um, something that would just uh, be temporary, but that we would take it with us and that it would change our lives, Lord. In your holy name, amen. Amen. All right. So, am I still on? It feels weird. Need chip. Okay. So, when I go like this, is that still on? Are we all right? Because I can yell if we need to yell. All right. Sorry. All right, we're here. Okay, so we've been going through the book of Acts on Wednesday nights, and um, so I want to catch you up to the story. So one thing about preaching through the book of Acts that's interesting is that um, the book of Acts is like a, a continuous story. So sometimes two or three chapters are all one big long story of something that happened, and we're breaking it up into smaller parts and pulling the things that the Lord has for us out of smaller parts. So the section I have right now is three verses. So I want to catch you up (laughs) for the last couple chapters of where we've been and why these three verses are important. So we're dealing with Apostle Paul here. Uh, The Apostle Paul came into Jerusalem and he's in the temple and he's taking part in the Jewish purification ritual because... He came to Jerusalem, and they said, okay, people are a little hacked off by the things they've heard you say, so we need you to show the Jews that you're not against them, that that you both are wanting to pursue God, so go in and do this um, uh, ritual, um, uh, purification ritual, and show them that you're not refuting everything that the Jews believe, you are just talking about the same God they worship and the same God they love, but you're talking about Jesus Christ who is the Messiah they've been waiting for. So let's, let's do this thing. And so he goes in there and he's doing this thing, but it doesn't matter because the Jews sees him. They're really mad at him. They make a bunch of false accusations. They stir up a big, huge mob. They cause a riot and they try to get him killed. They drag him out of the temple. They're going to kill this guy. But the Roman authorities are like, whoa, 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 you just can't do that. So uh, the centurions step in and they pick up Paul and they're trying to carry him on their shoulders because the Jews are so mad, they're trying to tear him apart. And there's a whole mob, and it says that the, some, some people in the mob think they're doing one thing, other people think they're doing another. They're, they're confused about what they're even doing right now. They're just going to try to kill Paul. So it's, it's interesting to me, you know, people being people, it's 2,000 years ago, but But it's not hard for me to picture a scenario in which a few people can stir up an entire mob to do some awful thing, but most of the mob doesn't even know what they're trying to accomplish. They're just all mad. And so we see that going on here. Now, the Jews want him killed, but the the Roman rulers couldn't find any crime that he had committed. So they're like, well, he's certainly done nothing wrong worth death or even imprisonment. So I'm not really sure what's going on here. But the Jewish mob is really mad, and they're plotting a murder plot uh, in Jerusalem. So the, the um, Claudius uh, Lysias um, has to take him and move him away. He's like, we got to get you out of here, Paul. They're trying to murder you. So they're going to move him to go stand in front of uh, Governor Felix in Caesarea to hear the charges they have against him. Because clearly, it's not going to happen in Jerusalem. So, although he hadn't committed any crime, uh, 
and, and the Romans are like, doesn't seem like you've done anything wrong, but we're going to let you go before Governor Felix, and um, the Jews can bring their accusations to, to him if they really want to fight over this. So they bring him there, and uh, in front of Governor Felix, the high priest shows up to condemn Paul. Um, but what's interesting is the original accusers that stirred up the, mall and, uh, the mob and pulled Paul out to kill him, they didn't show up. I just thought that was an interesting point. So Paul makes his defense before Felix. The, the, uh, um, the Jewish priest, the high priest, doesn't really bring any evidence against him. Uh, but Felix wants to wait a few days to decide. And he wants to talk to the Roman commander who rescued Paul from the mob at first. So Paul is still held as a prisoner. So that's where we're at. Paul is being held under prisoner uh, under Governor Felix because the Jews were really mad and wanted him dead. And the Romans can't seem to find any fault in him. So they're trying to figure out what to do now. That's where we're at. So let's look at Acts chapter 24, verses 24 through 27. It says this. After some days, when Felix came with his wife, Jerusalem, who was Jewish... He sent for Paul and heard him concerning faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, "Uh, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that, you know, uh, money would be given to him by Paul, that he might release him early. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So he was arrested for doing nothing. He's been kept as a prisoner for two years, and now he's still going to stay there. It's exciting. So tonight I want to talk to you about motives versus actions. Because we always see people's actions and we like to assign the motives to their actions. We don't always know what their motives were, but we like to assign it. So if you think about it this way, actions are what you did, but motives are why you did it. Now, as you've heard it said, we're meaning-making machines. We'll take whatever bits of information we have, and we'll take them and create a storyline, something that our brains can wrap around and make sense. People are not good with not having the answers. They're not good with, it just happened, or uh, it was just uh, by chance. People, oh, it doesn't matter what it is, whatever life circumstance is, they need to know a reason why this happened. And without that, they will make up all sorts of reasons why it happened. Not just with people's motives, but pretty much anything. And I think you understand what I'm talking about. It just, they'll make things out of anything. Someone dies or someone gets elected or whatever. They're always like trying to make some meaning out of it. And what does this mean for us? The first thing we do is typically assign motives to whatever we see happening. But this is what I thought was interesting about motives is we automatically assign negative motives to what people's actions are, but... Not to what dogs' actions are. <laughs> Have you noticed this? I'm not the only one who's noticed this, right? Like when a person, la- when a person lashes out, we say they're mean, they're jealous, they're spiteful, they're malicious. 
I can't believe they would do that. That's terrible. Cast them out of the assembly. (laughs) But when a dog bites somebody, we say it's the owner's fault. It was abused. It feels threatened. It's scared. That's just what dogs do. We don't see that hurting people that hurt other people may do that for the same reasons. They've been abused. They're scared. They're threatened. They had bad owners. Sometimes people had a bad example set for them. People are dysfunctional sometimes. Because they've never seen what functional looks like. It's just true. It happens. I remember a time. Now, this is something you may not know of me, but the people close to me definitely know of me, like my wife and Pastor Matt, is that when I'm in a mood or I'm really tired, I have a bad habit of saying things (laughs) that you probably shouldn't say. The good thing is, is I catch it. And I will apologize immediately, will I not? But I will intentionally try not to say things when I'm stressed or tired because it's typically not going to be something good. And things ensue. And so sometimes, like, not every time when I'm quiet, but a lot of times when I'm quiet, and you're like, hey, what's the matter? What's going on? It's like, I don't want to say because it's going to be weird. So I remember this one time, um, this one time, uh, my dad had got to the hospital. He was, uh, my dad for the last two years of his life was in and out of the hospital and every time felt like the time. You ever had that experience? Every time they go in, you're like, this is the last time. What are we going to do? What, how are we going to deal with it? And then a couple months later, all of a sudden they're better and they're home. And you're like, whoa, I thought that was going to be it. And then they go back in. And so towards the end, it was just downward steps and... Um, so anyway, he's in the hospital, pretty serious medical condition. It seems like he could die at any time. I'm dealing with my uh, undealt with PTSD and anger issues at work. You know what? This is what's interesting too. Maybe you've noticed this. It's people never, uh, well, not never. People usually don't lose it uh, on people uh, and get all freaked out with people at work. They usually bring it home and save it for the ones they love the most. I'm not the only, am I, just just me? Man, some of the people I love the most have caught the worst wrath. Why? I'll tell you why. Because you feel safe with them. Because if you do it at work, you don't know what's going to happen. But you come home, you feel safe, and all of a sudden, that's it. Anyways, that's just what happens. So this time was no different, although it was an immediate family member. I had a family member, and they were doing something that I didn't think they should. I th- they weren't doing something that they should have been doing. Let's just put it that way. And I was wholly justified. I was wholly right. Everything I said was absolutely true, but the way I said it was completely wrong. I yelled at them. I berated them. I told them all the things they were doing wrong and all the things I thought they should be doing right. And here's what's funny, too is since I know this about myself, I called Shelly before I made the phone call, and I said, I'm that, this mad, I want to call, I want to say something, uh, but I don't think I'm going to be able to do it in a nice way. And she said, do not call them, don't do it, don't say it, you don't need to do it right now. And I'm like, you're right, you're right, you're right. And then I hung up and I called them right after. I was like, it's going to be okay, I'll get through it. I did not get through it. 
so I'm, I'm towards the end of this tirade, and the things said back and forth uh, didn't make anybody feel really good. And I realized immediately, I can't believe I've done this. I just did it again. Um, I, you know, and so we got off the phone, and immediately I start to apologize. And they're like, I don't think you're being sincere. I'm like, ah. I realized because I just yelled at you uh, and was mean-spirited that I could see why you think that, but I'm profusely sorry. I got, it got out of hand fast. I'm a little stressed out. My brother's going to die of kidney disease. My dad's in the hospital right now. Work pressure, whatever, right? No. I don't believe you. I think you're just saying that. So basically, uh, we get to a point where um, my apology's not accepted. Now my motives for everything I've ever done are in question. <laughs> because of this, because I lost it, I did the wrong thing, I said, I said uh, I, my delivery was terrible, uh, which, so I, I gave up the fact that I was right, because clearly that does not matter anymore, because I totally wrecked this thing. But now it doesn't matter anymore. Now uh, me, now I don't understand, now uh, I can't try to make withdrawals when I've never made deposits in the love bank. And I'm like, wow, I do not realize how quickly this thing um, fell apart. So I had to tell them about my PTSD and how I was struggling with that and how that sometimes makes me upset. And then guess what? Instantly, everything was fine again. All of a sudden, I was forgiven. They showed they cared. Uh, really, I only received the sympathy that a wounded animal gets. Not a beloved family member. That's crazy, right? But think about it. One time I lose it, right? And then that's it. We're done with, we're done with him. He loses it. He's angry. No forgiveness. Nothing you can say is going to make this right. Oh, you poor wounded thing. You didn't mean to do it. You can't help it. It's your nature. I know you tried to bite me. Right? Because that's what we give to dogs. We only forgive them when they come up with some pitiful reason to beg for forgiveness. Wounded people bite people. It's worth considering their motives and the reason why. It doesn't necessarily mean their actions are good. Clearly, my actions were not good. But maybe my motives weren't just to destroy you today. Maybe there's other things going on. Because is that all it takes? Somebody wrongs you once and you're done? Because what if Jesus did that to you? What if that's how it ended? What if Jesus was like, listen, last week you came to the altar and you gave your life to me and this week you're going right back to your yeah. fill in the blank. Anger issues, uh, addictions, uh, bad behavior. You're going to come up here and give your life to me and then go back to work and curse your mouth off like a sailor? Fine, we're done. You've shown your true colors. That sounds a lot worse that way, right? We've got to think of our motives. Tonight, I want you to reflect on your own motives and your subsequent actions. Consider your response to the actions of others, despite their motives. Why do you do what you do? I spend a lot of time thinking about why do I do what I do. Uh, and I also spend time thinking about why would somebody else do what they did. Because I think like, 
I don't know if you've ever had this thought. But sometimes I think, why would somebody intentionally want to drive their life into the ground? Isn't it possible they don't know how to live their life without wrecking it? Isn't it possible their motives aren't to destroy everybody around them? Maybe their motives are are something good. They just don't have the skills and abilities to get there. Right? It sounds a lot different, right? It's easier for me to have forgiveness for somebody when I can put myself in their shoes and say, well, maybe if I was in their situation, I'd have a hard time being a nice guy too. We examine each other's motives. So in this story, we see Felix and his motives. Because if you're like me, we often assign motives to people in the Bible too. Why they did something, why they didn't do something, what it must mean. But interestingly enough, here, when we're looking at uh, Felix's motives, it's very clear what his motives were. So let's take a look at it. Proverbs 21 verse 2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Let's look at Felix's motives here. Let's look at verse 25. It says, now is he, now is Paul, now as Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Felix, it says up in verse 22, had a more accurate knowledge of the way. So Felix already understood what Paul was talking about. He had an accurate knowledge of the way. The way is basically what they called Christianity back then. It was the way, the way of Christ. So Felix already knew what Paul was talking about. He had an accurate knowledge of it. Paul's preaching the truth, talking about self-control, righteousness, and judgment. And Felix is like, "Woo, okay, um, why don't you take a break? I got busy all of a sudden. I'll come get you when I'm ready to talk to you again. Well, also, Felix's wife, Derusala, as we saw in in, uh, verse 24, she's Jewish. She understands God's laws also. What we didn't see is that she abandoned her husband to marry Felix. So she knew what she did was against God's commands too. So you have Felix, who's notably corrupt, is aware of the way. And here's Paul talking about things and feeling convicted. You've got Jerusalem, who knows the way. She knows what she did was wrong too, so she's feeling convicted. So they say, we need you to go away for a while because it's inconvenient right now for us to hear the truth. Um, the Bible says he was afraid of what? So when Paul said, so you sent Paul away. Hearing Paul's message, Felix and, Jer- Felix and Jerusalem clearly felt convicted. Possibly he was afraid of the judgment of God um, because that's scary for the unrepentant. If you are unrepentant in your sins, if you know what you've done is wrong and you don't want to admit to it and ask for forgiveness and turn your wicked ways, then somebody talking about uh, judgment, you don't like it. Now, when, when you are repentant and you are pursuing the things of God, and even though you make mistakes, you still come back and say, God, I'm so sorry. I want more of you. Please forgive me. I want to try again. You're not super worried about hearing about judgment. You're aware of it. <laughs> you know where you want to be with it. But if you don't want to hear, if you're trapped in your sins, you don't want to hear about judgment, let's send the holy man away because I do not want to hear about this judgment anymore. He's avoiding the biblical truth because the truth can hurt. 
And the truth requires life change. When you're confronted with the truth of Scripture, you have two choices. One is to get away from it. The other is to change your life. It's really hard to stay in that in-between zone where you're hearing the truth of Scripture, but not doing anything about it. That's a hard zone. Very upset stomach type feeling. Most people either push away or they push in. Now let's look at verse 26. It says, Meanwhile, he, Felix, also hoped that, you know, money would be given to him by Paul, that he might release him early. So he sent for him often to converse with him. What are his motives for weakly having Paul come out to speak to him the word of the Lord? He might get something in return for it. So he just kept coming after it. Paul, come back again. Let's talk some more. Maybe he'll get what he wants out of it. He wants a bribe. But it's interesting. I think Paul did nothing. (laughs) So Paul did nothing. Now he's held as a prisoner. And Felix keeps wanting to talk to him like, hey, come back, come back. I want to hear what you have to say. All the while, his motive is to get money. He wanted to be in Paul's presence, but not for the gospel, but because he thought he could get something in return. Mm, It's not good motives. Let's look at verse 27. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Felix left Paul bound to please the Jews. He wasn't Jewish. He didn't believe that the Jews were right. But he left Paul in captivity anyways, presumably to maintain the favor in the Jews' eyes. So, why did he do it? He knew that Paul wasn't guilty, but it made the Jews happy. Keep the peace. Keep you popular. Keep the people happy. His motives were to please the people around him. His actions were to be unfair to Paul. It was more important to look good in front of the people than to live out the truth of God. Man, Felix. What are you teaching us here, Felix? But before, you knew it was going to come to this, didn't you? But before we judge Felix's motives too harshly, let's consider our own motives that may be the same. Do you find yourself avoiding biblical truth or picking and choosing what to respond to because you're afraid of judgment, knowing that accepting it means that you will have to change your choices? Do you ever do that? Duck and weave, trying to just pick the good verses, listen to the good worship songs that tell you how good you are and how the blessings are coming but not the hard worship songs talking about the blood and the sacrifice and falling to your knees. There was this guy at work who will never hear this, so you don't have to worry about it. (laughs) There was this guy at work, so I don't know how uh, frequently you try to share the gospel at work, but this is one time where I was, I hit the point where I'm like, I'm just going to say it like bold. I'm just going to hit him with it. And we're talking about church stuff and we're talking about Jesus stuff. And then I just go into it. You know, Christ is the only way to heaven, and that if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you know, then you don't, you know, make heaven and stuff. And he stops me, like right in the middle of it. And he says, he says, Jason, I'm going to stop you right there. Because I want you to know that my dad was a really, really good man. And I loved him very much. He was a really good man, but he didn't know Jesus. So if you're about to say, 
that he's going to be in hell now because he didn't know Jesus. You need to just stop right there. So I was like, okay, let's, uh, <laughs> I was like, wow. But the reality to it is, and, and listen, you got to pick your moments, right? Because that was not the time to turn around and be like, but he is in hell. Do you want to be there with him? Not the moment. Pick your moments. <clears throat> but the reality is, is that he's, he's stopping himself from believing the truth solely based on the ramifications of what that decision is going to mean. It's dominoes. If he says that, yes, Jesus is the only way to heaven, and he says, yes, I want to be a Christian and give, live my life for him so I can have eternal life, he's also saying, yes, my dad didn't make it. Yes, he's in hell and eternal damnation. So he already knows, probably because he's had the conversation with somebody else before, that he's not going to go there because he's not willing to accept what's all the way down here when the dominoes start falling, right? So are we going to be like that? You know the first domino is going to fall, so you just avoid the conversation altogether? Now how about this? Do you only meet with Jesus every week? Go to church to get something in return? You need a job. You need a spouse. You need God to fix something. You need something to start. You need something to stop. But once you get what you want, will you stop coming to church, worshiping God, and seeking his word? It happens. I mean, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just saying. We see it. We've been around for 16 years. We see people come in. They're like, oh, my life's falling apart. I need Jesus. I'm ready to dedicate my life to him again. And a couple months later, things are going a little bit better. They got a job. Next thing you know, they don't go to church anymore. Say, where you been? Oh, you know, I've just been busy working. Okay. But a couple months ago, you were clamoring after the things of God. Because all you need is Him. But now the heat's off. And now you don't need Him anymore. Of course, you can always come to God with all your needs. The, the first place you should be when you hit rock bottom and, the bo and everything goes wrong in your life is in church. Absolutely. Do that. <laughs> but don't forget about what he's done for you. Sometimes people will come to church with their needs or come to God with their needs and, and they're really just looking for kind of like a good luck charm. You know, they're looking for their little talisman to say like, okay, well, I went to church and I gave some tithes and I went to the Bible study and then so things are going to start going right in my life now. They have to because I've done all the things. You know, I went to the altar and I raised my hands. And so any day now, everything's going to turn around because now I'm checking all the bases. And that's just not how it works. He's not a good luck charm doing all the religious thing, hedging your bets, right? Because you're still doing all the other stuff to try to get your life right. But you're doing the church thing too, just in case. I mean, because what if? What if it works? It's like rolling the dice. Put money on both, both sides. Every one of us here would say, and I don't doubt it at all, if I asked you the question, every one of us would here would say, I don't care what the world thinks of me. I only care what God thinks. I don't care about what the world thinks. 
I don't care what other people think of me. Okay, well, I got a question then. Do you act the same around people at work as you do around people at church? Sometimes I got to check myself. Sometimes after a conversation, I say to myself, would I have that conversation with somebody at church? Because if you wouldn't, then you're acting different for the world somehow. What's your motives? Right? I, rem- I try to remind myself that when I show up to work, I try to say, am I going to be the same person here as I am when I'm at church? What's my motives? Because if my motives are to be liked or to be part of the in crowd or be protected or to be thought of as funny or to be respected, maybe my actions are doing and saying what they need to hear and see to respect me and like me and think I'm funny. Or I could just be the person God's called me to be and just hope that that's good enough for them. But it's hard to do. But what are our motives? It's easy to throw Felix under the bus. But we have to think about ourselves. Next, let's consider Paul's motives. Now, Paul's dealing with false accusations leading to an extended imprisonment. Uh, He's at the beck and call of a man who has the ability to free him, but doesn't. He preaches to him weakly, yet sees no life change in him. This ultimately gets turned over to a new captor who he has to start all over again with. Imagine that. Imagine you've been talking to this uh, man who's in control, uh, this powerful man who has the ability to free you about the things of God. And he keeps calling you back week after week. Hey, let's talk some more about what you're doing. And after two years, not only does he not set you free, also his life doesn't change at all. And now you got a new guy you got to talk to and work on. When I say, what would my motives be? I'd be pretty frustrated. I'd be like, that's not what I signed up for. I mean, I'm sure Paul could perceive what was happening. I'm sure he wasn't walking into his weekly meetings with Felix going, today's the day. One more moment. He's on the edge. I just need to buy him one more cup of coffee. I just got to invite him to one more thing and he'll be there. He's a smart and experienced man. Paul's talked to a lot of people about the gospel. I'm sure he knew what was going on. But what do Paul's actions tell us about his motives? I see, when I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, what, is he, what did he do and what didn't he do that explains his motives to me? So what, what Paul didn't do, Paul didn't complain to his friends. Paul didn't resist Felix's authority. Paul didn't become offended, and Paul didn't give up. He still came every week. At some point, I'm like, listen, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Because unless you got like a a release slip for me so I can leave this place, I think we're done talking. No, it doesn't sound like he did that at all. What did Paul do? Paul stayed patient. Man, I would not stay patient. I'm so quick to just end it. I'm like, okay, I don't see this is going anywhere. We're done with that. Because I'm investing my time in somebody or something. As soon as I get an inkling that it's wasted time, I'm like, I'm out. That's why I love Pastor Matt so much. He never gives up on people. (laughs) It's just like, at some point, (laughs) you got to let him go. But this is what's interesting because... 
again, I put myself in other people's shoes and I, and I question other people's motives. So in the last 16 years, there's been many people who I was already done with. I'm like, time to cut them loose, Pastor Matt. Inside, because that's mean. I mean, why would I say that outside? <laughs> and have somebody actually see my real motives? I'm like, no, no, no. Don't say that out loud. You say it inside. But then after so much effort and just, you know, all this kind of stuff, finally you see them come around and their life starts to change and they're growing in the Lord. I'm like, huh, I guess it was good. He didn't cut them off because I was done with them. I was like, no, one firecracker in the toilet. I'm like, you're out. (laughs) I'm saying that's a flaw in me. Felix has been wasting Paul's time, but Paul's still preaching the honest truth to him. Paul is focused on the mission. He's not wavering from what he's been called to do. Paul still preached the honest truth to Felix. He's talking about judgment and righteousness and self-control. This isn't the kind of message you preach to somebody when you want to stay in their good graces. (laughs) He's like, no, I'm just going to be honest with you about it. But when I think about being honest in preaching the truth, I think that your delivery matters. Because if you don't have an audience, then you lose a lot of value in what you say, honestly. If nobody's listening to you, it doesn't really matter what you're saying, how good or how bad. So I think the, the delivery matters a lot. You want to make sure you are not the reason why somebody rejects the gospel. When you deliver it in a rude or impatient way, when you're, you have thoughtless timing, uh, when, you, uh, you, when your goal is to put somebody in their place with the scripture. Man, I see that on Facebook all the time. When people try to use scripture to put other people in their place. And I just think, I'm pretty sure that fits in with the definition of blasphemy. Yeah, or using the Lord's name in vain. It's got to be one of those things, right? I mean, certainly not what the scripture's for. It's for you to feel self-righteously justified. Don't do it. It just makes you look bad. When you try to deliver the gospel without practicing what you preach in your own life, you're just pushing people away from salvation. And when you talk to people about the gospel and why they've resisted it, and they say, because Christians are, fill in the blank. Because somebody did that. Somebody said, I'm a Christian, here's the gospel, but this is how I'm going to act and behave towards you. So don't be that person. I don't want to be that person. They're not really rejecting the truth. They're rejecting you. So you can't really wear that as a badge of honor that everybody's rejecting you when you're a Christian. But they're rejecting you because of who you are, not because of who you serve. That's not good reason. Don't stick with that. Consider your motives and why you're trying to deliver the message to them. And you got to make sure you're telling them the whole truth. You know... um, some, some people have careers where they see death and you have to tell people that their loved ones have died. And so this is what I know about having to tell somebody hard news like that is you want to be direct and to the point. You don't want to waver with fancy words. You don't want to say your loved one has moved on to a better place because it leaves this false hope that gets in the way of finding true hope in Jesus Christ. You say your loved one has died. 
Otherwise, the brain can't hold on to it. It's looking for another way to make meaning out of this thing. You say they passed on. You're like, passed on to where? But maybe if I do this and if I hope in these things, it's just not the way it works. You just have to say it. It's like almost respectfully blunt. You stay on topic, you just have to say it. It's a harsh reality, but it's way easier than seeing what happens in the long run if you dance around it and beat around the book and try to make it about something else that it's not. Sharing the gospel is the same way. When you try to soft sell it, when you try to dance around the hard parts, you're setting them up for failure when they find out what it's really all about. You got to be honest with life and death matters and learning about Jesus Christ is the same way. Be honest. It's going to be much harder for people in the long run if you try to soft sell with the, what dying to self and giving your life to Christ is all about. Because one day they're going to wake up in some you know, coffee shop in the back of some church somewhere and they're going to be like, wait a second, no one ever told me about this whole giving up my rights, dying to myself, sacrificing for others thing. Nobody ever told me that. They told me I get blessings. They told me I get to go to heaven. They told me grace covers everything. They didn't tell me I had to do anything about it. That's a hard pill to swallow after the fact. Because the reality is this. If you don't tell people the truth in a loving and respectful way, you're setting them up for not being able to count the cost of their decision. Um, I don't want to say who. But I know someone who bought a timeshare once. Not me. I'm speaking for a, I'm speaking for a friend. Now, when this person bought a timeshare, they were filled with joy. They were like, listen, no, you don't understand. It's not a trap. It's not a trick. No, it's not. Because we went and they gave us a whole weekend for free, first of all. Weekend away, free at Mexico. It's beautiful. And now that we're involved in this timeshare... We get to stay anywhere in the world where this timeshare is at. We get to go anywhere in the world. We get to stay everywhere. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful thing. But what they weren't focusing on is the fact that everywhere in the world that you want to be is booked out like two years. You can't stay there because it's not available. I mean, you could if it was, but it's not. So, and every year you still have to pay maintenance fees. That equal about half the trip you want to take anyway. And you're locked into like a 20-year deal. So you just bought something that you can hardly use to go to places that aren't available that you won't even be able to give away to somebody. Now, it's not all bad. I know a guy who has a timeshare in Hawaii. They go every other year like clockwork. They love it. They plan on going forever. For him, it seems to work. But he's aware that if he wants to go anywhere but Hawaii, it's going to cost him more than it would have if he just would have done the deal. So we can't sell people a timeshare Jesus that says you get weekends for free and can do anything you want without telling them the cost. That it definitely costs you something. Because if they're not willing to accept the cost, they're going to walk away from the deal in the long run anyway. They're going to end up paying somebody to take this thing off their hand that they didn't want to pay for in the first place, metaphorically speaking. You've got to let them count the cost. But I bet, you know, if Paul changed the message and softened it, he could have been released sooner. 
Probably would have gone easier on him. Coughed up a little money. No, he's not going to do that. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. The real, the real thing is, is that, that God knows your motives already. He knows your motives. You just need to know your motives. That's what I want you to get to understand. Now, what's Paul doing sitting here? I mean, what does this outcome mean for him? He's still in jail. He's been doing everything he's been called to do. He's still a prisoner. He's still not free. What does this mean for him? Felix has wasted a lot of his time, a lot of his freedom, a lot of his energy. The question is, was it worth it? Was Paul sitting back wondering if it was worth it? Was Paul sitting back even wondering or caring about what Felix's motives were? I don't know. I think Paul's well aware that he's not responsible for the outcome. He's only responsible for being obedient to what God called him to. Who are we to decide what the outcome's supposed to be? We just decide to be obedient to what God's called us to do. Think of this whole scenario. How many exclusive audiences has Paul get to share the gospel in front of because he was wrongly arrested and shipped from place to place to speak to governors and whoever else? People that would never hear it except for Paul's in prison. They're like, what are you even here for? Let me tell you why I'm here. Jesus Christ, right? Because God's plan doesn't always look like we think it's going to look. So once you kind of get that settled in your mind that that the outcome you think is going to happen may not be the outcome that happens, and you're just to stick to the business of doing God's called you to do, everything's going to be a lot better. So today, I'm asking you to consider your own motives. Now, I'm bad with directions, as the people close to me know. But I do know this, that if you're going to use a map, you need to have two pieces of information. If you're going to get anywhere, you need to have these two pieces of information. What do you think they are? It's a start and finish, right? You need to know where you're going. Okay, easy. I can solve that problem for you. But you also need to know where you are right now. Because all the directions in the world aren't going to help you if you don't know where you're starting from. So that's what I'm trying to get you to understand today, is what are your real motives? Figure out where you're really starting from. We can all lie to ourselves and say, oh, no, those aren't my motives. I would never do that. But sometimes when you peel back the onion and you realize, sometimes you had good motives when you started and you end up in a place where you don't have them anymore. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, how did I get here? How did my motives change so much from where I started to where I'm at now? Now that you know where you're at now, guess what? You can find a roadmap to get where you need to be. The Bible can tell you everything you want to know about where you need to be. But if you won't admit to yourself where you're starting from and your real motives, you're never going to get there. Here's some verses that you can use for calibration. Calibration check. James 4.3, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. If the motives behind your prayer requests are selfish, don't expect for them to be answered. You know, honestly, it's for your benefit that they're not getting answered. And when you get your motives right, you look back on those prayer requests and be like, Ooh, thank you, Lord. Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do in word and deed, do all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Why are you serving or preaching or giving or whatever you do to serve God? 
Are you looking to glorify him or to get glory for yourself? A lot of people are like, ooh, I want to do that. I want to be up front. I want to lead. Why? Why would you want to do that? What's the value? Can't you bring value to the Lord where you're at? Because if you're doing nothing already, but you want to be in leadership, my question is why? What is leadership getting you that standing over here can't get you? Recognition, right? People looking at you. You want to preach the gospel? Boom. Preach the gospel. You want to serve the Lord? Serve the Lord. You want to make a difference in people's lives? Make a difference in people's lives. And when you're faithful with these things, maybe if it's the Lord's plan, you can be faithful with these things. But why are you looking over here? You've got to consider your motives, right? Matthew 6.1 says, Take heed that you do not do charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. The key part of that scripture is not hide what you're doing. It's don't do them to be seen by others. Go do charity. Go do wonderful things posted on Facebook. But if your motives in that are so that people will see you and recognize the good things that you're doing, you just got your treasure right there. If your motives are to set a good example for others so that they might go do wonderful things for the Lord, that's pretty good. Yeah, I'll take that one. That's a good motive. And the last one is Galatians 1.10. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I speak to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. At some point, it will all come down to this. You will not be doing yourself or anybody else any good by being a squishy, lazy, indecisive Christian. You can't walk the middle of that between pleasing man and pleasing God. You're going to have to please God and just... Be as loving as you can and hope a bunch of people don't run away from you and hate you. I don't know what to tell you. Because if you're trying to just please them, you're going to be squishy and say a bunch of things that are half-truths and set them up for failure. That's all you're going to do. You won't be honoring God. It won't do you any good in your life. It won't do any good in their life. That's why lukewarm is worse than hot or cold. Nobody likes lukewarm coffee. Read your Bibles, pray, seek God's calling for your life, and recalibrate your true motives. That's how you do it. Be honest with yourself about why you do what you do. Think about it. Like, take some time and actually think about your motives behind what you're doing. Make your motives to live for Christ and serve Him and honor Him in everything. And that's how you get where you need to go. Make your motives good. You want to serve the Lord. That's where you want to be. And then everything else will go well for you. Amen? Is good? Is all right? Okay, let's pray. Okay, Lord Jesus, we love you so much and we give you glory and praise. Right now, before I finish this prayer, I want to give you an opportunity to give your life to Jesus Christ. I want you to know the full truth. I want you to know how it goes. I feel like I've kind of laid it out for you today. If you want to give your life to Jesus Christ for the first time, and lay it out there and say, I understand, I'm going to repent of my sins, and I'm going to give my life wholly and completely to you, and forsake my own will and desires, and want to just serve the Lord and His calling on your life. If that's you, you want to give your life to Christ for the first time today, I want you to just raise your hand so I can pray with you. Now, maybe you're in this place right now, and you've just had a reality check on your motives and you want to change the way you've done business, you're in the right place. 
Just ask for forgiveness for your bad motives. Ask for forgiveness for your bad actions. Turn around and go the other direction. Tell God you're ready to accept him and, and, and serve him with good motives because you want to glorify him and not yourself. Make that change in your life. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. I give you glory and praise. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. May it never leave us in your holy name, Lord. Amen. Go pick up your kids right away.